as we start, we're going to go ahead and start just by reading the four verses we're going to look at. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. As we start, I wanted to bring a couple of uh, news headlines that I found uh, just on Friday that I want to bring these to your attention just briefly. Fire rained down on paradise this week. A wildfire broke out on the Hawaiian island of Maui early Wednesday morning, claiming 36 lives and reducing postcard-perfect towns to ash. The fire spread with alarming speed and decimated the historic coastal town of Lahaina, a popular tourist destination that dates back to the 1700s. The Coast Guard has rescued 14 islanders, including two children, who took to the ocean to escape flames and smoke. President Biden has issued an emergency declaration. The Coast Guard and Navy are supporting rescue efforts while the Marines are providing Black Hawk helicopters to fight the fires. Flames and high winds have knocked out power and communications, completing efforts and evacuations. The flames remain uncontained, fueled by dry vegetation, low humidity, and strong winds from Hurricane, from Hurricane Dora churning 500 miles southward. In other parts of the world, Ecuador has declared a 60-day state of emergency after one of its presidential candidates was assassinated. Fernando Villavicencio, sorry, I butchered that, was not a front-runner in a pack of eight presidential hopefuls, but was known as an outspoken, was known as being outspoken against corruption and organized crime. He was assassinated at a political rally in Ecuador's capital Quito on Wednesday. Six related arrests have been made and extramilitary personnel have been deployed. Ecuador will observe three days of mourning in response to the death. Sitting President Guillermo Lasso implied a, connect, implied a connection between the killing and the country's organized crimes crisis. Gang violence in Ecuador has been on the rise, a major issue for his successor will have to tackle. Lasso called the assassination an attempt to sabotage the electoral process but said democracy has to be strengthened, and August 20th election should proceed. In the U.S., the FBI shot and killed a Utah man who was approximately 70 to 75 years old while trying to, quote, serve arrest and search warrants at a residence, end quote. The man was wanted for threatening to murder President Biden hours before the president was, to set, was set to visit Salt Lake City and was found to own multiple firearms, including a sniper rifle. The shooting is under review. The U.S. has reached a deal with Iran to free five imprisoned Iranian-Americans in return for their freedom. The U.S. will, receive, will free several jailed Iranians and unfree $6 billion in Iranian funds being held in South Korea. Iran took the first step of moving the five Americans from prison to house arrest yesterday, 
voted on Thursday, but the situation remains, quote, delicate. Even with these news stories of our day, we can echo what the prophet was saying. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? Plundering and violence on before me, there is strife and contention arises. The law is powerless. Justice never goes forth. Have you asked or heard someone ask, where's God? Why did God let this happen? Why did the evil prosper while others suffer? This was the opening questions Habakkuk brought to the Lord. And while the Lord answered this initial series of questions, it spurred on other questions from the prophet. But let's start with this initial problem, this concern of where was God amidst evil prospering. So let's start at verse 1. Now verse 1 is we're going to be a little bit more um, background just to kind of give us an idea of where we're at who and who's at play here. So Habakkuk 1 verse 1, this is the title verse. The burden which the Lord, which the prophet Habakkuk saw. So we have here Habakkuk the prophet. Habakkuk the prophet. Well, our first question is, who is Habakkuk? He was likely, uh, many believe he was likely a priest or at least a Levite. Some believe he was, quote, on staff at the temple because of the liturgical structure uh, of his of the book, the uh, and including the psalm that is that is chapter three. Uh, we use the word psalm there, even though that is not that psalm is not found in the book of Psalms. It is only found there, but it is very psalm-like in its structure and how it is um, how it is played. Uh, there is also definite liturgical aspects to it. There, his book has this idea of, you can feel this lament litur liturgy coming out in it that is very common in some of the lament psalms, such as Psalm 13 that we read this morning. We see here that Habakkuk is recorded as a prophet in verse 1, and he is mentioned again by name only in chapter 3, verse 1. These are the only two direct references in the Old Testament to this prophet. Now verse 1 says that this was a burden. Some translations will say the oracle which the prophet saw. Um, so there, so it may, is this a prophecy? Is it an oracle? Is it a burden? What's, what's the the concern here, what's, which way is best? Well, the, the word comes from a verb meaning to lift up and often signifies that thing that is lifted up, thus a burden. Uh, however, this word can be translated to be oracle and referring to an utterance uh, or declaration. While Habakkuk's message certainly is burdensome and heavy and weighted, this word is used in other places with 
that that doesn't have that heavy weight, that burdensome feel to it, such as Proverbs 30, verse 1, the word is used there. And in Proverbs 31, verse 1, the word is also used there. And those are non-threatening, non-burdensome passages. It's just the oracle spoken by so-and-so. Other than that, we really don't know who Habakkuk is. There are some legends, uh, some traditions that come around, including a reference from the apocryphal count of Bel and the dragon. This is an addition to uh, Daniel within the apocrypha. And there it is it's this, uh, described that Daniel is praying in the den and that the angel, co angel comes and brings Habakkuk with some food, blowing him to Daniel, giving, letting him have the food, and then taking him back to, back to Israel. And he's mentioned there, he's referred there as a Levite. So that's some of these ideas. Other Jewish sources identify Habakkuk as the son of the Shunammite woman from 2 Kings 4, verse 16. Uh, this is the, the boy who uh, Elisha winds, uh, winds up saving or prays for his resurrection uh, just a little bit later. Others identify Habakkuk as the, the watchman specifically mentioned in Isaiah chapter 21, verse 6, especially because Habakkuk will use that image in chapter 2 verse 1 he says i will stand my watch or i will yeah i will stand my watch he uses that same image and so there's that continuing image and some associate habakkuk with that watchman in isaiah 21 but really these are just suppositions these are just traditions handed down we don't know for sure you know, the book of Habakkuk is the only place that we know for sure in the canon where he is mentioned. Well, what is the timing? What, when is this happening? And there's a little bit of debate over this, but I think that most likely Habakkuk was written during the reign of King Jehoiakim, the second, sorry, the third to last king of Judah, and one of the, one of the worst kings Judah had. This means that Habakkuk was likely a contemporary of the prophets Jeremiah, Nahum, and Zephaniah. Habakkuk likely lived and ministered during this pivotal era of Judah's history. This would have gone from, the era would have gone anywhere from 625 BC to 575 BC. During this time, Josiah was implementing his religious and by default political reforms. Josiah, the last good king of Judah. During this time, Assyria was crumbling as a world power and Babylon was beginning to emerge as its replacement. One author states that Josiah rules, rules during years in which Assyria fades, but also those in which Babylon is not yet ready to rule as far west as Judah, and in a time when Egypt does not yet attempt to rule the smaller nations north of the border. Judah thereby gets a rest from its constant role as a political football. That's during Josiah's reign. During this time, Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to lead the Babylonian army, not as king, but as prince, uh, and leading the army. 
During this time, Nebuchadnezzar defeats Pharaoh Necho II at the Battle of Carchemish. Following this battle, Jehoiakim, whom Necho had placed on the throne of Judah after killing Josiah, changed allegiances to Babylon from Egypt. During this time, Nebuchadnezzar had to return home following the death of his father to be proclaimed king. And a few years later, Jehoiakim rebels against Babylon, apparently supporting an Egyptian attempt and was defeated in 601 BC. By the winter of 598-597, Babylon was in, had invaded Judea, Judah, captured Jerusalem, killing Jehoiakim. Within three months of that, Je Jehoiachin, or Je Jehoiakin, the new king was taken captive along, uh, captive and taken to Babylon along with ten thousand others, and his uncle Zedekiah was placed on the throne. So, likely between the time of Josiah's death in six hundred nine B.C. and Nebuchadnezzar's ascension to the throne of, of Babylon in six hundred five is the setting that we have here. Josiah is gone. The reforms that he had been instituting are now falling by the wayside. As his, as Jehoiakim is placed on the throne and begins to do, begins to follow in his grandfather and great-grandfather's footsteps. This is the setting for this book, the oracle that Habakkuk saw. Now this will bring us down to verses 2 through 4, and here's kind of the meat of our section this morning. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife, and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgments proceed. So in verses 2 through 4 we see Habakkuk's questions. Habakkuk's questions. And in verses 2 through 3 we kind of see two basic questions, but they're kind of uh, two basic questions that go hand in hand. He's, Habakkuk is asking here in verses 2 and 3, where are you and why don't you do something? Habakkuk starts his questioning with that familiar question of the Lament Psalms, how long? It implies here that Habakkuk has been praying for a while. And he's asking, how long until you hear? How long until you do something? In these questions, there's an implied expectation of an answer. God, I want you to answer me now. How long? When are you going to do something? Are you hearing me? The, this is where Habakkuk is. On his knees, lamenting, almost completely complaining to God that God is not hearing him, that God is not acting. He says, I, cry, I call out to you, violence. 
and you will not save. The word violence there refers to the violating of a moral law against one's fellow man. It can uh, refer to actual physical brutality, but that is just one expression of the wrong. Verse 3, Habakkuk is asking about the injustice he is seeing. Why should I see evil? Why do you show me iniquity? And then this, this second question here, and cause me to see trouble. This can also be trans, often translated, uh, and, and how do you see uh, trouble? Why do you look at trouble or look at idly looking at trouble? That second question there in verse 3 is asking why God is tolerating the, the wrong, why he can sit and idly watch what is happening. So, he's, so these questions really are, where are you and why aren't you doing something? And the end of verse 3, he describes the wrong and the violence that he is seeing, that he is asking God about. He is describing destruction or devastation or plundering. For plundering and violence are before me. Plundering, devastation, destruction. He's seeing all these things happen. Why aren't you doing something? That violence there uh, is the same word that was used in verse 2, uh, but have, may have more of that actual sense of violent acts rather than just violating the moral law. He mentions strife and conviction. There is strife and contention arises. These words are very similar, uh, but have, uh, they're very similar in use, but have just slight varying meanings. The word that we have here is strife is more of, of conflict and might even be violent, while the other word contention, contentious, uh, is more about quarreling and, and strong disagreements. People are breaking out in the fistfights. They're showing each other. There's there all this all this contention and strife among the people. This description Habakkuk gives is really a description of the life in Judah under the reign of Jehoiakim. Second Kings describes Jehoiakim this way in 2 Kings 23, starting in verse 36. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's, na his mother's name was uh, Zebedah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Notice he said, fathers. His father was Josiah, the last king of good king of Judah, but according to all that his fathers had done. This is referring to his grandfather and great-grandfather, not at least those two, because that is Manasseh and Ammon. Manasseh's father was Hezekiah. Hezekiah and Josiah were the last two good kings. Manasseh is described as the worst evil king of Judah, and Jehoiakim was really close behind him. Jehoiakim's grandfather, Ammon, only, was only there for, for 
a year before he was replaced. He wasn't doing much better, but Manasseh reigned for a while. But Manasseh was quite the evil king. Second Chronicles 36 describes Jehoiakim in a very similar manner. During the reign of Jehoiakim, more, most famously, we have the ministry of Jeremiah. And during this reign, what is recorded in the book of Jeremiah is some of the ruthless actions of this king. In Jeremiah 36, verses 20 to 26, Jehoiakim cuts away and burns a scroll of Jeremiah's prophecies that was recorded by his scribe Baruch. He then threatened to have them both killed. And as evil as his great-grandfather was, Jehoiakim has the dubious honor of being the only specifically recorded evil king of Judah to kill a named prophet in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 26, beginning in verse 20, There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shimei, from Kiriath-Jerim. He prophesied against the city and against this land in the words like those of Jeremiah. And when King Jehoiakim, with all his warriors and all the officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard it, he was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, and others with him. They took Uriah from Egypt, brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body in the burial place of the common people. Jehoiakim is the only king to have the dubious honor of killing a named prophet in Judah. At least as recorded in Scripture. Jeremiah even delivered a prophecy concerning Jehoiakim's burial. In Jeremiah 22, verses 18 and 19, he says, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or ah, his majesty. With the burial of a donkey he shall be buried, dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. You want to see what God thought of Jehoiakim? Read the rest of that section, Jeremiah 22, verses 18 to 23. God did not think very highly of Jehoiakim. And when Jehoiakim was killed by Nebuchadnezzar, he was dragged outside the city of Jerusalem and dumped. Really, the questions of verses 2 and 3 here in Habakkuk 1 ask one simple question. Where's the justice? Where's the justice? To Habakkuk, God seemed to be indifferent to the injustice, the violence and iniquity all around him in Judah. This was causing him to cry out in lament and ask God, why? To ask God, where are you? To ask God if he has even heard his prayers. Habakkuk's problem was what he knew of God. 
He knew the Old Testament passage that described God's holiness. Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 6, The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Habakkuk's problem wasn't that God was merciful. It was wondering why God's holiness wasn't enacting justice upon Judah and putting an end to the wickedness of his people, which God said he would do within the re-giving of the law in Deuteronomy. Where is the justice? Most of us are familiar with the name Al Capone, and that name typically brings to mind crime, gangsters terrorizing a city, and Scarface himself beating three of his wayward subordinates to death with a baseball bat. But that view of Capone wasn't always the case. During the 1920s, many people viewed Capone as a respected citizen, a sort of Robin Hood, says Ron Grossman. In 1930, students at Northwestern University's Middle, uh, Middle School of J Journalism were asked to name the outstanding personages of the world. Capone made the list, along with George Bernard Shaw, Mahatma Gandhi, and Albert Einstein. But Capone's days of power were short-lived. In 31, 1931, he attended a football game at Northwestern University. In years past, he has attended sporting events and was often saluted by fans. But this time, he was booed. He was booed out of the stands and left the stadium in humiliation. In 1931, after only six years as a mob boss in Chicago, Capone was convicted of income tax evasion. He ended up in Alcatraz, and eight years later, he was released from prison. He was suffering from the advanced stages of syphilis, lived as a recluse, and died in 1947. During his time in Alcatraz, Capone worked in the prison shoe shop and shared his cell with a convict who worked at the prison newspaper. Capone once told his cellmate one shop. You're supposed to be a safe cracker, and now you write editorials. What kind of screwed-up, lousy world is this? This world is a place where those who violate God's law may flourish for a season, but their days are numbered. Sooner or later on this earth, or in the great judgment seat, evildoers will pay for their deeds. As we turn now, look at verse 4. Therefore the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Verse 4, his question really comes down to this, and I think this is kind of an underlying question that we have here. What should the righteous do? What should I do? He gives a little bit of the situation here. He says that the law is powerless, powerless that the law is paralyzed. 
Now, the law here may refer to the Torah, to the Mosaic law, or it may just refer to more general uh, a general law of how to act, not necessarily the, the Mosaic law in specific. At best, it refers to God's instructions for life. It says the law is powerless. It's paralyzed. It's not doing anything. It's not doing the work it's supposed to. And justice never goes forth. If the law is powerless, then justice doesn't do anything. At the end of the verse, he says, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Others will say, um, other translations will say that justice is perverted. He's saying that justice is withheld and crooked. Justice isn't being done. It's going out crooked or perverse or perverted. It, the idea is that it's bent out of shape. We get this picture that justice should be a straight straight and solid, like a rod of steel, but it's now bent. It's now crooked. It's no longer justice. It's something else. Listen to verse 4 from the Message Bible, a, a paraphrase of scriptures, not a very good translation, but a, a paraphrase. But it's good to get a little bit idea, clearer picture. Verse 4 of Habakkuk 1 in the message says this, Law and order fall to pieces. Justice is a joke. The wicked have the righteous hamstrung and stand justice on its head. That's what he's getting across. That's the idea of this verse. Nothing is doing the what what it should. A Time article from 1982 uh, tells us this, not guilty by reason of insanity. That was the unbelievable sentence recited by Judge Barrington Parker following the, each of the 13 charges leveled against John Warnock Hinckley Jr., for the attempted assassination of President Ronald Reagan. The trial is said to have cost $2.5 million. As would be expected, reactions to the verdict varied from clever maneuvering of language to a travesty of justice. Arthur Eads, District Attorney for Bell County, Texas, declared, only in the U.S. can a man try to assassinate the leader of the country in front of 125 million people and be found not guilty. Many echoed the sentiments of Eads that the, verdict, that the verdict was symptomatic of runaway leniency in the justice system. Justice goes out crooked. It's bent. It's out of shape. Now in verse 4 here, he says, For the wicked surround the righteous. Now this raises a question. Who are the wicked that he is referring to? Some think this refers to Babylon. But most likely it refers to Judah. There's nothing really in this context of verses that would point to Babylon being the, being the wicked here. Wicked is used later, and it is very clearly pointing to Babylon, but here 
it makes more sense that this is referring to Judah. That the the idea of the law uh, and justice being going, not going forth. There, this applies seems to apply more to Judah and its law rather than to Babylon. The reference to law, justice, social violence tend to point to the children of Israel unless it is otherwise indicated. The wicked surround him in, outnumber the righteous. There is corruption among the religious and civil leadership. Wickedness, evil prevailed in Judah. We can imagine Habakkuk reading his daily newspaper, watching the nightly news, seeing only evil, wickedness, and injustice. The king and his men are corrupt and ruthless. There are false prophets confusing the people. Some of the priests are corrupting the true religion of God, of God's people, or have turned away completely. So Habakkuk's underlying question is not only where is the justice, where are you, why aren't you answering, but it's also what should the righteous do? What should the righteous do? Now that question will be answered a little bit later. But the answer is found in Psalm 13, verses 5 to 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. It's found in Psalm 42, verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The answer is found in the last three verses of, of Habakkuk, Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The answer is a little more specifically given in chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up, but it is not upright within him. Here we go. But the righteous shall live by his faith. So what should the righteous do? The righteous shall live by his faith. We may not necessarily see God acting. We may wonder where God is, but we know where he is. He is on the throne, and we need to trust him even when it seems difficult. But that doesn't mean we can't go to the Lord in prayer. We have psalms like Psalm 13 and 42 that are laments, that go to the depths of our despair and cry out to God. And that's okay. And most of these lament psalms end 
in praise and in hope and are generally followed by psalms of praise and divine protection and divine care. So it's okay to bring our complaints, our concerns, our laments to God. But we need to keep trusting. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we were able to look into your word and to see a little bit different uh, section, a book that we don't typically look into, talking about rather difficult things and hard questions. But Father, we thank you that we're able to bring these questions to you. Help us to, remain, to, to continually trust you, to remember that you are on the throne and that you are sovereignly overseeing everything. That while we may question things, we know you are in control. And nothing is happening that you are not aware of. Nothing has caught you off guard. Nothing has caught you by surprise. So we thank you. Bolster our faith. Help us stand firm in your armor. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.